You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. Well, you probably heard me before mention John Calvin. Uh, John Calvin was a Genevan reformer, uh, pastor, theologian. Probably his magnum opus, his greatest work, is called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. Uh, But it didn't start out to be his magnum opus or his grand work. Uh, What he initially started it out to be was simply a short summary of the Christian faith. Uh, In the process, he realized there was much more that he wanted to keep adding until eventually became a two-volume work. Uh, But Calvin knew that probably not many people uh, would read the two-volume work. So then he began to publish excerpts from it that would kind of go out more into the hands of the the common person in Geneva. And one of those excerpts called The Guide to Christian Living, a very thin book, uh, he makes this comment. He says, the gospel, or Christianity, is not intended for the tongue, but for life. And what he was going there was it's not intended just to be something for lip service, but but something that changes the heart. And he would go on a little further to simply give this challenge. We, We need to prove ourselves to others that we are disciples of Christ. Well, how how do you do that? Well, look with me at Galatians chapter five, because as with many of Paul's letters, like we saw last week with Ephesians. The second half of his letter is devoted to application. So in other words, when you get to especially Galatians 5, all the way through Galatians 6, verse 10, Paul is applying what he's already told you in the first half of the letter. Uh, And a quick synopsis of that, as Paul has said, you're saved by grace. Uh, You're covered in the righteousness of Christ, not your own righteousness, And you have been given the spirit of adoption or the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, by which you can cry, Abba, Father. So he's laid all that out before us. Now he's dealing with how should that be proof of your Christianity, of your faith? And and we're going to look at this passage in particular, 16 through 26, in terms of three spiritual truths that are set before us. The first is simply that he talks about the battle of every believer, that that he brings this right home, not to just the hearers of this letter and scattered about in Galatia, but but for you and me. What what is the battle of every believer? Uh, So look at me at verses 16 through 18. And remember that Paul began this letter with with no words of praise. He was very troubled that that many were starting to be pulled away from from their faith. Uh, And so he wants to bring back, what does a genuine, authentic Christianity look like? One that's intended not for the tongue, but for life. So look with me at verses 16 through 18. Let me read this again. Uh, So I say, or therefore, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do 
what you want. <clears throat> now notice there's an imperative. There's a command that is given here that's based on what Christ has already done for us, expounded in the first three chapters. And the command is, you are to live by the Spirit. Uh, some translations have another accurate rendering, you are to walk by the Spirit. Uh, this is the pattern in which, as a child of God, you are to live. Now, on the one sense, I don't think that's a new command. You know, if you've gone to church enough times, read your Bible, especially in New Testament, you're probably aware that, yes, that's true, we, we are in a battle. But I think the tendency for all of us is we forget what that really means in reality. So, for example, if I were to say to you, how many of you are aware that there's a war going on between Russia and the Ukraine in the Ukraine? I think we'd all be aware. We've heard the news enough. But that's different than if I said, are you aware of the most recent attacks? You know, are you aware of the most recent effectiveness Russia's had by using drones? We might say, oh, no, I, I wasn't aware of that. Like, I'm not following it that closely. I just know it's happening. Well, I think we want to bring that mindset into this, that the battle of every Christian is a very real battle. And it, it is something we need to not just give general lip service to, but, but to fully grasp this is what we deal with every day if you are a Christian. Even if you try to seclude yourself from every aspect of the world, this battle between the spirit and the sinful nature is, is going to come after you. And so let's take a closer look at what he says there. You notice in verse 17 in particular, he keeps repeating the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit. And likewise, the spirit desires what is contrary to the sinful nature. And then in verse 17, at the end, he goes on and says, they are in conflict with each other. Two strong words. They're contrary to one another. They're in conflict with one another. Um, you could emphasize they're, they're definitely opposed to one another. They, they are hostile to one another. There, there's no room for compromise here and in, in finding middle ground between them. And so we think of the life of the Spirit is the person who knows Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells them. The sinful nature is that, that presence that still resides in the believer, but, but not the power and guilt that has been broken by Christ's death and resurrection. And I would think it's probably safe to say for all of us, you this week have said something, done something, thought something, where you would find yourself saying, I, I didn't really want to think that or I didn't really wish mean to say that, or I shouldn't have said that. Well, that is a living proof of this battle that's there. Two opposing natures. I've referenced before John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, if you've never read it, it's an excellent read. It's an allegory of the main character, Christian, and his journey to the celestial city. So journeying to... Christian life till you're with God. Well, in that, in that journey, he emphasizes that as Christian is on this journey, he's involved in a holy war. That as soon as he started that journey, that's the nature of his life. And so it's very good for us to grasp this imperative. We, we are to what? Live by the Spirit. Why? Because 
our sinful nature wants to pull us in the opposite direction. The world around us wants to pull us. But then look closely at verse 18, because in the reality of this imperative, there's a divine promise we want to always cling to. Verse 18 says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, twice Paul will talk about the law and the difference here. And we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But notice, whenever you see a verse that begins with the conjunction, but, it indicates a contrast. Something has changed now. So you notice the end of verse 17. In this conflict, Paul says, you know, you, you do what you do not want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit. So here's the divine promise. That victory has been won for us in Christ. The, the battle is an ever-present battle. But we should experience victory in increasing areas in our life, not, not the complete victory in this life. That will be when we stand before Christ. But the reality is we have this divine promise. So as Paul's getting closer to ending this letter, he's not ending it on a defeatist mentality, but undergirding what he's just said with remember what it means to be led by the Spirit. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is a great place to read when maybe you are spiritually discouraged. Uh, it's filled with the reminder of not just life through the Spirit, which again is what Paul's dealing with in Galatians 5, uh, but a theme he brings up in Romans, talking about growing in Christ. But Romans 8, and in particular, verses 37 through 39. Think about all of the potential obstacles uh, to the Christian walk. Uh, distractions, sinful thoughts, uh, worries, getting anxious because of money issues and things like that. E even as a church, as we're concerned for financial needs, uh, it shouldn't lead us into some kind of tailspin or, or panic that, you know, has God abandoned us. But you come back to Romans 8 and listen to verses 37 through 39. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There you have that reminder in writing for us to look at that there's nothing that can separate us from God's love for us. There's nothing that can separate you from your salvation by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. So as we realize there is this ever-present battle any of us face in Christ between the Holy Spirit living in us, wanting to shape us into Christ's image, and the presence of a sinful nature that has been weakened and ultimately defeated, but is still presently there that rages in us. So let's go to the second principle, and that would be the fruitfulness of every believer. So if you return to Galatians chapter 5, uh, we often kind of think of Galatians 5 simply of the fruit of the Spirit. 
But we need to realize, to order to understand that, a contrast is helpful. And so you notice in verses 19 through 21, you have a description of the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit, uh, the fruit or working of someone who does not know Christ. And so just listen to the, the list, and we must always read this list as not exhaustive. Obviously, there are many more manifestations, proofs that someone is not a Christian. But, but these give you a broad sort of overview. And Paul says, this is the fruit, not of the Spirit, but the fruit of the sinful nature. The acts or works of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And if, if you kind of look and, and not try to so much organize these into specific categories, these sins, but you realize they, they kind of start out more with sexual sins, and then they, they wrap up with just talking about sins in terms of our relationships with others. Earlier in this letter, Paul said that, that some in the church there, some of these believers, they're, they're biting one another. They're, they're devouring one another. In other words, their relationships are not visual, visible proof of what their tongues are professing. And, and that deeply troubles Paul. Uh, and I think we're all aware, in, it, if you know someone who's not a Christian, these are the inconsistencies they often pick up on. They'll say something like this. Well, I knew someone was a Christian and they gossiped. Or they really hurt me by doing this. So it's interesting when you look at this, key in on verse 21, which, which raises a question. If, if you listen to his list of sins he mentioned, isn't it possible for a Christian to commit those same sins? And I think we're honest with ourselves. We would say somewhere we, we probably all committed at least one of these sins. So what does Paul mean when he says, look, you know, if, if this is what you do, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, the key word there is in verse 21, those who live like this. In other words, this is not a, a stumbling repentance, forgiveness, restoration, and moving in a new direction. This is the pattern of their life. And, and as Christians, we should take comfort in that. It shouldn't make us lax to these sins, but to say, you know what, we, we, we sadly, we do. We stumble at times. But we can have forgiveness in Christ in that, and, and we desire to move and, and get godly instruction to help us not fall into that same pattern. But the individuals he's referring to here in 19 and 21, this is how they live. This is the uninterrupted, character of their lives. So notice as you read that, Paul is not saying, and he makes this very clear in Galatians earlier, he's not saying you're saved by your behavior. So he's not promoting salvation by works, like do these things or do the opposite of them and you're in. Because he already accused them of, of 
compromising and promoting a salvation by works and grace. So, in other words, this is helpful to us to realize what does the absence of fruit tell us? It should raise the question, what is the authenticity of someone's faith? And, and that is right for us to, to bring that issue to the forefront, as Paul does here. Notice, for example, I'm not a gardener. I know we have some gardeners, like Karen and others. Uh, but I don't think you have to be a gardener to realize that we're coming to the time of the year when growth is slowing down. And we expect that. We know how seasons work. Sadly, sometimes we almost adopt that attitude to our Christianity. Like, well, I, you know, I, I, I grew a lot in another year. Or I used to do a lot, and now I don't do as much. Like almost thinking somehow that justifies a curtailing of our spiritual fruit. And you, you see Paul saying here, no, if, if you're going to talk about proof of your Christianity, for it to be visible, you're saved by grace. You didn't do anything to earn that salvation. But that salvation should be evident to those around you. So that brings us now to verses 22 and following. We have the reality of continuous fruit in the life of the Christian. Now, by saying that, I realize there are periods where we probably go through some spiritual dryness. I mean, we see that in the scriptures with different individuals. I think we'll see that in our own lives. But, but there should be a consistency in terms of the manifestation, the display, what it means that we're followers of Christ, that we are walking or living by the Holy Spirit. So you'll notice as you get to verse 22, once again, it speaks in a very singular way, the, the fruit of the Spirit. Now, next week, you'll see that's very different when you talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Th those are plural. Those are not specifically assigned to one person. So here, by using the singular, Paul's indicating this is the, the unified work of the Holy Spirit in every single Christian. So when we think of the fruit of the Spirit, this should be evident, all of the fruit, in all of us in increasing degrees. So let's take a closer look at what Paul lists here. And notice again, you could say that he'll, he'll list nine byproducts of your faith in Christ um, as probably an umbrella. There's, there's many more. I think you could kind of say, well, what about this? What about that? But listen to what he says here. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such, there is no law. Now, I want you to think for a moment, as probably you listen to them, as I listen to them, I quickly find myself sometimes saying, oh, I, I, can't, I can't do that. Or I haven't done that like I should, which is why it's a fruit of the Spirit. He doesn't say it's a work you do, you know, try harder to be more loving. He says, this is a, the result of the Spirit working through you. And, and notice when he speaks of here, 
you know, look at the opposite of what we see in our world to what this is saying should characterize the Christian individually. And I would be as bold to say should characterize us corporately. I mean, who wouldn't be attracted to, to a church or community of believers who displays love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control? I mean, isn't that what our world desperately needs to see lived out before them? And when you think of each of these, they're in their own, they're worthy of a study to unpack, and, and that's not what we're going to do now. But I would encourage you, go through your Bible. You know, look up the word love in a concordance and, and see how God defines love. Uh, I'm often struck in conversations with people who, who kind of want to define Christian love the way our world defines love. And our world kind of says love is you just accept me for who I am, how I am. You, you don't expect anything from me. Now, we know that's not the biblical definition of love. God does not say, yes, you're a sinner. Uh, I died for you. But then he doesn't say, uh, you know, I just accept you for whatever sinful patterns you have in your life. Don't worry about it. You know, I just love you no matter what. No, remember he says, be holy because I am holy. And so as you listen to these fruit of the Spirit, it probably should also bring to mind, doesn't that fruit sound what God is 100%? That when you think of his attributes, he's loving, he's patient, he's kind. He, he's the standard of goodness, faithfulness. But there's that odd phrase at the end of verse 23, which Paul repeated earlier, against such there is no law. Now, in Galatians, Paul is setting a contrast between the law and the spirit, between the old covenant and the new covenant. But we mustn't see that as an antagonistic thing. And in fact, what Paul may be saying here is, now as a believer, you live out these things, not because of some external pressure or obligation. This is how you live because it comes from the heart. It comes from your love for God. It's not an external law. It is an internal law. And that should bring to mind something that the prophet Jeremiah said, when God promised he would give a new covenant, and he said, I will write my law, where? On, on your heart. And, and now you will know me like no other people before have known me through what we would say is through Jesus Christ. So notice our faith does need to be verbal. We, we do need to give an explanation, but, but it also needs to be visible. And, and the fruit of the Spirit here is part of that visible testimony. Now, again, we want to be careful here. It's not the only part. So, for example, I bet some of you could think of people who you know who are loving and kind, but are not Christians. So just because someone is loving and kind doesn't mean someone is going to jump to the conclusion that they are a Christian. I was listening to an interview of a guy who worked in an office place. He was a Christian, uh, but he was very quiet about his testimony. Basically, he was under the assumption, 
well, if, if I just am a nice person, people will conclude I'm a Christian, and then they might ask me about my faith. Well, he said he was getting ready to leave that position and take a transfer, and they had a little party for him, and, and he suddenly realized that was not happening. And in fact, he had a conversation with someone at his party, and, and they said to him, he asked them, do, do you know why I'm different? And they were like, no. And he said, because I'm a Christian. And his coworker replied, well, I knew there was something different. I thought maybe you were a Hindu. Now, notice what that says to us. Just because we're nice and kind does not mean people will conclude that we're followers of Christ. And yet, that part of our walk is an important aspect. It does need to have a visible side to it. Well, then notice the, the last two verses, verses 24 through 26, give us the encouragement we all need as believers. So, so we're in this constant battle, and, and you can't choose to not be in the battle if you've confessed faith in Christ. The, the war is on, spirit versus your sinful nature. Listen to verses 24 to 26. Paul says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with his passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. So again, look at verse 24, something Paul stresses in Romans chapter 6. Consider yourself dead to the power and guilt of sin. Now, we, we kind of give that lip service. We were like, yes, Christ died for my sins. But, but sometimes we give way too much power and authority to, to sins draw on us. I mean, this is basically saying, if you belong to Christ, your, your sinful nature has been crucified. And the tense there is referring to something that happened in your past. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones had to say about this when he was asked why he was kind of hesitant on preaching on Romans 6, which starts out, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. Uh, very seriously, he said, uh, when I can understand it. And in other words, what he was saying is that is a very deep and important truth. And, and I don't want to teach on it until I really wrap my mind around that. So as Paul is encouraging them to say, you know what, if you know Christ, this, this is the reality that has been put to death. And once again, we want to stress the difference. It's put to death, but, but it is still present. But you no longer have to serve that master because you have a new master in Christ Jesus. And we need to remind ourselves of that. But then you also see as well that every believer is to see themselves now as living to Christ. So he says, live by the Spirit. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. Which, which I love that thought, which we kind of talked about last week. Keep in step with the Spirit. The Spirit is always seeking to lead you and me. Notice he doesn't say, you know, what you need to do as a Christian is occasionally stop and let the Spirit catch up with you. Because the opposite. The Spirit's one step ahead of you, always wanting to lead you further and further 
along in your walk with Christ. So now that that old nature has been crucified and done away with, now you have a new nature. The Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, who lives in you. Look at what he says just two chapters earlier, Galatians 2 and verse 20, which is very typical as you read Paul's letters. He, he'll often say things earlier in the letter that he will come back to uh, and that will tie into what he's saying. So back in Galatians chapter 2, listen to what he says in verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul's not saying something to the readers of this letter that he does not fully believe or apply to himself. He's saying, I, I live a crucified life. Now, when, when you hear that word crucified, you want to think of, if you lived in the first century, what would be the first picture you would think? You wouldn't think of jewelry. You wouldn't think of a necklace with a cross on it. You'd think of a Roman crucifixion. You'd think of a painful event. And yet, to, to bring that into reality, that's as dramatic as is what happened to each of us in Christ Jesus. So no wonder that Paul, and then later John Calvin, would say the gospel, Christianity, is really meant for life. It's meant to be lived out and demonstrated before our world and explain to them why we live so differently and, and how it is possible to live a life like that. And so we can't really talk about the Holy Spirit unless we also speak about the visible reality of Jesus Christ in each of our lives. And so in a letter that starts out with no praise, no, con no commending of them, actually comes full circle to encourage those, listen to what you've heard, be led by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, and it will be noticeable. To those around you. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we are in desperate need of being reminded of the importance of not living life in our own strength or according to our own wisdom, uh, but Lord, living it in accordance with your Holy Spirit, who we know will only reveal to us what you have taught, will only open up the revealed scriptures to us. And so, Lord, may we be encouraged challenged and convicted by Paul's pastoral words uh, to believers in the first century that is just as relevant to believers today. In Jesus' name, amen.